This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at cyphercast.net and follow us on Twitter at cyphercast.net. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I'm Scott. And I'm Dave. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing one spell. With All You Are Is Mine to Use, we'll be doing an overview of Book M. Join us on the path of suns, and we may discover a secret or two. When we cast All You Are Is Mine to Use, we discuss the books and other releases for our Invisible Sun games. This time we discuss the long-lost but recently found Book M. Uh, we are, uh, as with our discussion with uh, Secrets of Silent Streets, uh, we've only recently received the PDFs of these books. Uh, so we're going to be discussing uh, what we found based on our initial review and kind of skim of the books. Uh, our, our hope is this will provide information for people who may be interested but not sure whether they want to buy the book uh, or talk about uh, what is included in the book for those who have it but haven't started reading it yet. But it is not a comprehensive review and we'll likely get back to some of the specific topics in later segments. But we wanted to give people a sense of what is in this mysterious book that had a, a delayed and a, a long path to our uh, right now computer screens and, and will be getting to our doors soon. Um, and there is a lot to talk about in this book. Uh, yeah, super delayed. Um, manufacturing issues. Right. And, and I say super delayed, but in some sense, it wasn't delayed all that long, just a few months. Uh, which yeah, on the scale of things isn't so bad. Um, and they just flipped the release order of this and Secrets of Silent Streets. So they, they still had a pretty good continuity of the release schedule, just with a different order. But yeah, the manufacturer of Book M was more complicated than the other books because Book M includes uh, cards. And a slipcase. Yeah, exactly. As this, uh, the, the slipcase. And those were just harder to manufacture than the books themselves. And so it's not a big surprise that uh, this is the one that got into trouble, at least so far, uh, of the post-Cube releases. Uh, but it will be winding our way to our doorsteps very soon. And in the meantime, we have a PDF to look at. So we'll understand better what the content is, even if we won't have the physical cards or slipcase to play with just yet. But this does mean that my uh, players are going to be able to start pulling secrets from this book. And uh, we'll, we will get to what it contains, but I think secrets are the first things that will get pulled from this book. Though I have a player interested in Fortes as well. Um, but you can see there's a diverse set of material in the book. Uh, I wasn't quite sure what to expect. I knew that the purpose of the book was to expand on basically magic in Invisible Sun, which is to say mm -hmm. everything in Invisible Sun. Uh after seeing the black cube, it was basically, oh, this is the way part two. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's like uh, the way, but with more information and more topics. Right. Um, and it elaborates on various elements of the game, which reinforces my view that you really need to be selective as to which aspects of the game you want to include. Because there are, are elements that you... I'm sure there will be some things that everyone ignores. It just won't be the same things for everyone and every table. Because this game is uh, quite elaborate with a lot of subsystems uh, that you could very easily just ignore if you wanted to, and if it was overwhelming you. Um, or you could incorporate as many as you want. But some people are going to be attracted to some subsystems more than others. 
Yeah, and I found at our table, like, we've basically ignored house secrets. Um, the houses are kind of a... Uh, they're a location that show up in our games, uh, generally whenever the characters are in Indigo. Um, but we haven't really done anything with the secrets, uh, that you can get for your houses. So I haven't really felt it was, uh, necessary or interesting to try and mess with their houses too much. Uh, we'll see how that changes when they start making some more enemies around town. Yeah, my games have not involved the houses very much either. Uh, they've certainly been present, and the mm -hmm. creation of the houses and neighborhoods has been fun. Uh, but players have been attracted to so many other parts of the setting that they haven't been elaborated on as much as uh, many other elements. And and this is example where I think that's fine. Um, the game just supports you emphasizing different areas, and maybe uh, houses are where some people really want to focus. Mm -hmm. We see some of this with the with some of the actual plays, um, but not all the groups will want to do that, and, and that's okay. Uh, and this book just provides many, many new options across a variety of these subsystems uh, and areas of the game. So there may be entire sections that you don't really care that much about, but there will be other sections you care intensely about. Uh, and the, one of the fun elements of the community in this game is uh, almost everyone picking up the book is going to be interested in different parts of it. So what do we got in this book, Scott? What are we talking about? Now, the book is uh, far-ranging. It begins with a discussion of how magic works in the actuality at a fundamental level. Mm -hmm. There is some elaboration on a topic only briefly discussed in the Black Cube, which was the currents of magic and the notion that there's different paths through the sun, that we uh, are most familiar with one path of suns, uh, or the path of suns, as we would call it, and uh, that path through the suns, that there's a notion of a night side path, but there are some have suggested there are many, many different paths. And this book provides some information on how you might introduce these different paths through the suns into your game with uh, both setting material and uh, mechanical implications for these different paths. This is an example of an element of the book that I, I wouldn't necessarily want to just hand around to players because I think it would be most fun as a setting detail that, that is revealed through the game that players might uh, eventually come across some information about an alternative uh, current of magic. And that would be very cool to them if it's something they discovered in the game, as opposed to just being, you know, page seven of the book or whatever it might be. So since there are different currents of magic, do you, th and the currents of magic, they tend to be, uh, if, if I'm looking at this correctly, uh, the Path of Suns is one of the currents of magic, and it follows what we know as the path. Then the Night Side is another current, which also have it has its own path that goes backwards. <clears throat> so then the other currents we have are different paths through the suns. Would that be correct? I think so, and I believe three or four of them are named in the, the Black Cube. Yeah, I think uh, Zane and Aver are, are named in it. Um, so if those are also paths through the suns, would you then be able to travel along those different paths with things like Pathwalker or the other spells and secrets and abilities that you can get as a Vizlay? My instinct would be to say you could travel along those paths if you were attuned to that current. Cool. Because I think that would actually be really interesting, especially for the character in my group who wants to travel to every sun but 
has a reason to not go back to the green sun at this point. <laughs> well, this provides an interesting opportunity for a character arc uh, or other sort of investigation uh, goals to, to find a path that circumvents the green. Mm -hmm. And I will note that some of the currents are not defined very well in the book, so you, which leaves spaces for you to create your own actual path uh, and assign it to a particular current. Mm -hmm. So there's room for you to design a custom current within your own setting. Uh, beyond this very fundamental discussion of magic, there's some elaboration on uh, some of the challenges people have faced when playing the game and using magic. So there's an extended table for magical effect. Do you know, do you know what they added to this? I haven't compared it side by side. I noticed invisibility was one. Oh, okay. I, I was looking through it and I said, man, there, there's a lot more stuff on here. This is a much bigger table. So that's cool. Um, I wonder what's different and how can I get this printed up so that I can give it to my weaver? <laughs> yeah, I, I want to say it's almost twice as long for each level. Maybe not quite, and it probably varies level to level. Mm -hmm. uh, but it, it might be as much as twice as long for some of the levels of different examples of uh, now, like what invisibility powers might look like at levels one through, uh, you know, I don't know if it goes beyond 10 or not, but, you know, because it, it, above 10, some of the powers don't necessarily have representations. Um, sure. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it provides a lot more information. I think it's useful, and uh, you're right, it would be a great handout to have in some way. Yeah, um, we, we reference the, the sheet all the time uh, when we're trying to figure out, like, uh, when the maker wants to build something, what level is the effect that they're shooting for? When the weaver is building a spell, you know, he's always looking at, this sheet to figure out, you know, here's the thing that I want to do. What is similar to it? So now he's got, you know, more stuff to read through. Like, oh, since when someone is lying is level three, uh, foil a specific divination at level five. Like, I think that's new. Like, that's that's interesting. That's it's good to have those reference points. I think it's going to help weavers a lot, but it'll also help GMs try to figure out what sort of abilities are relevant for. Um, antagonists at different levels. Yep. And if you're spontaneously creating spell effects to say, oh, well, this effect looks like it should be about this level based upon what, if you have a story reason for a particular effect, uh, that could be very helpful. Yeah, cool chart. And I'm going to have to get it printed up so that we can just use it at the table. And there's some other general advice, uh, some which isn't necessarily going to fundamentally change the game, but it is often clarification uh, for how the game is intended to play. There's a specific conversation about how one should only call for roles if failure is interesting. This has become almost a, a maxim of contemporary RPG play, but uh, it's worth emphasizing here that this game is not necessarily designed for every action to have a role. Just sort of uh, move along and play until you think that there is a juncture at which success or failure leads to interesting outcomes. Um, and then roll, rather than just every time you do something, roll. Uh, the, the piece that I took from that little section was when you cast a spell, it's generally not all that interesting to make them make your characters roll for it uh, because the spell is going to be powerful enough that whatever the effect is, it's, if, if it's a powerful spell, it's going gonna, it's gonna to work. Um, let's see. Uh, most of the time, however, neither spell will require a roll. Um, so like I've, I've had this come up at the table a few times where, and, and it's generally the weaver who is 
putting together some large effect and empties out their sorcery pool. And whenever that happens, yeah, it's it's very obvious. Like, no, this just works. You you've put the effort into it. You've spent all the the points that you need to. Like, you've overcome the level. There's nothing to roll here for. Like, it just happens. And the process of figuring out what you want to do and spending the resources and then having it just work like that that in it in and of itself is pretty fun. Right. And consider the alternative, which is you spend all those points, you roll, get a bad roll and you just, you, you do nothing. And, and yeah. it's like, that, that's not fun really for anybody. Uh, so another way to think of it is the game is, is designed to be more of a resource uh, allocation exercise than it is just raw probability. Now both are involved, mm-hmm. but think about when it is within your particular game, how players are, are experiencing the game and, and the fun they're enjoying is it better to think of this as just make sure they're expending their resources so they have to decide where to allocate said resources? Or is it more fun to let the dice lay where they may? And I think you'll find at different times, each of those uh, approaches will be more appropriate, more fun. But it's trying to validate that for much of the game, especially in sort of narrative mode, probably uh, your default should be if you cast a spell, it works. And don't worry about rolling dice until you have some sort of active opposition. Mm-hmm. Combat may be a little different, but uh, or action mode, but narrative mode and develop mode, it's probably easier most of the time to emphasize the resource allocation component than the uh, probability component. Yeah. So what else we got? Uh, there's also a quick note that addresses many, maybe the most common question that we see in the Facebook group and Cypher Unlimited and other sort of communities for Invisible Sun, that even if a spell does not call out extra dice, it doesn't mean that there shouldn't be additional dice. Uh, if you know, it, it, there's some gray areas to be sure, but they just want to want to emphasize that sometimes spells call out that they will add plus one die. But if it doesn't, think about whether it should or not. Don't just assume it doesn't because it doesn't say it. Um, yeah, I, I look at this as uh, when we have effects that modify or they provide some sort of small benefit. Like, let's say it dumps Bene in your pool. Uh, this exactly. spell is going to make you more charming. It adds some Bene to your pool. Uh, when that happens, you know, my interpretation generally is, well, this isn't going to add any enhancement dice. The benefit from the spell is it's giving you cubes. Um, but if, it, if a spell isn't adding dice, I tend not to grant extra ones. It just doesn't really come up all that often uh, at our table. Yeah, I think it would almost like I think of transitive verbs. If the spell, I, so yes, there's a, uh, the, the adding binase is an easy example of one that doesn't necessarily add an enhancement die. Spells that have a, an immediate uh, object, like a direct object of the spell, will mm-hmm. typically add an enhancement die unless they're, unless they're adding something else like binase or something like that. If you know exactly what it's affecting, uh, then that's when you start thinking even, it might add a die, even if it doesn't say that it adds a die. Uh, but they just kind of let you play this by ear within your game to see how it how it fits. Uh, but there have been a lot of people who have been thinking, if it doesn't say plus one die, then it can't have plus one die. And if it doesn't have plus one die, there's a variety of circumstances where the spell becomes ineffective entirely. And I think they're just trying to say, then you add a die. <laughs> The only time I get real strict about the enhancement dice is when it comes to weapons. Uh, and like we have a maker in the group and when the maker 
is crafting weapons for her friends. Uh, I, I've said like, hey, if you want this thing to grant enhancement dice, that's just going to be, you know, one of the things you can build into the object. Uh, and then it will grant enhancement dice. Uh, so instead of a level five weapon that just adds five damage, it's going to be a level five weapon that add that you know adds four damage, but also adds an enhancement die, mm-hmm. and that, and that seemed to give us a pretty good balance for how weapons work. Right, and it, it causes us to ask questions about whether the like say the weapon was created by magic or it is itself an object of magic. Uh, and if you want to get into the story as to why it's plus one die versus just plus one bene or something along those lines, and uh, they don't want to make a definitive call. They they kind of want you to decide what works for your game. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's frustrating for some, uh, but I think it, it, over time, I think we will have within the community a lot of examples of how people have balanced these concerns, and then people can ch- can ch- pick their strategy among various options. It's frustrating for players who need absolute answers to questions. Right. We have other games that serve that purpose. Uh, and that's kind of how they're designed. This game is not designed that way. It is designed for much more to be decided at the table uh, that might not be decided the same way at each table, and that's okay. But there's so much more in book. Yes. Is, uh, we're still only about, what, 10, 12 pages <laughs> into this book. Well, this this was all new. Like it, It's expanding on what we knew, and it's adding some extra stuff, and it's got some advice. I think the rest of this is going to be yeah, a little more straightforward. Right, because it's just additional material like things we've seen before. Except for this next section. Right. So in this next section, we have a variety of kind of aspects of magic in the world. The first of which is patrons. Neat. <laughs> so patrons are uh, a bargain you can strike with some immortal being that give you both a benefit and an obligation. And there's... Uh, nearly bottomless story potential <laughs> in in this uh, relationship. And this is available to n- not just Goetics. This is for anybody. Though Goetics are most often the, the order to have patrons. Yes. Uh, but it is something that if, if someone wants to mix a little bit of that sort of patron dynamic into their character and they're not a Goetic, this is a way to get a little bit of that flavor into um, a Vance or something along those lines. And uh, I don't have a count of how many patrons there are, but there's probably, there's quite a few uh, patrons. They're described with a lot of RP sort of detail, uh, as well as a benefit and obligation associated with each of these bargains. If there aren't 17 patrons, then there are probably 13. Okay. (laughs) That makes a lot of sense. I just didn't even think to count them. There are some examples of the sort, to give you some sense of the benefits you might get uh, you might get a book that lets you travel more easily, but in exchange for that book, uh, you uh, will eventually see. Uh, you'll eventually get uh, asked to uh, like grow the patron's offspring in your eye. That's, yeah, interesting. Uh, a little body horror there. Yeah, that's, uh, a, that's a fun one. Uh, one that might sound very familiar to readers of uh, Michael Moorcock. You might get a powerful weapon that uh, must destroy something every day and once a week must destroy an intelligent being. Yeah, the uh, the benefit you're getting is a really powerful weapon. But then the, the big ask here is once a week you have to kill an intelligent being. And so, so now I might say, I've said before, you might make, uh, Elric might be a maker 
who has some long form magic that looks like summoning. But now I'm thinking Elric could be a um, Goetic who has this particular patron mm-hmm. or something Elric like, you know, uh, similar to but legally distinct from Elric. Yeah. So there's a, there's a ton. Well, there are a lot of patrons in here and, you know, setting up a patronage is just, it's a total story thing that you're going to have to undertake. Um, but it, it seems really cool. Like I, I like this aspect that they're, they're tossing in here. Yeah. If people start creating fan content more than they do right now, I could see this is something that would start creating. Um, oh yeah. Making more quickly. patrons. Yeah. Uh, there's some discussion of miscellaneous magical phenomena like key falls uh, and, and the, you know, mysterious club zeros are examples of this, but there's a bunch of other similar phenomenon locations in the book. Yeah. I, uh, I read all the titles and I said, oh, that's really interesting. So next time I need to come up with some weird thing to show up in the game, I'm probably just going to hit this list and grab something out of here. Yeah. And, and it, it shows you what the boundaries can be for, or the absence of those boundaries can look like. Uh, within the game of the crazy sort of magical locations and phenomena you can include in the game, given how loose magic is in this uh, system. Uh, there's also discussion of curses and disease. Uh, again, just to illustrate what you can uh, what you can do with these sorts of uh, uh, problems uh, for your player characters and to make them not just mundane sorts of uh, of diseases or uh, traditional curses you might find in other games, but something that really ramps up the surreal magic component of it. I My favorite one is Lost Luck. It has been the subject of some conversation online. <laughs> oh, has it? Uh, <laughs> oh, yes. Um, it's, it's been amusing and, and a lot of guesses as to the intent behind it. I'm pretty sure I know the intent. <laughs> yeah. Uh, there are also then some elements of the book that will be very familiar to people because they just add options to systems we already relied upon. So there's 13 new forte for characters to choose from. Uh, And these vary widely. There's some that emphasize patrons. There's one that emphasizes combat magic. Uh, uh, There's a, a wide variety of different fortes. And I didn't see some that I thought overlapped too much. Yeah, I, I didn't really look through them too much. Like, we've done character creation. I don't really need to know about Forte. So, sorry, I have nothing to contribute. I have a person who may be interested in changing Forte's with the excuse that we stopped before the books actually came out. <laughs> and we're just about to start True. back up again. So, I think I will uh, certainly allow that. And having more Forte's to look at is is uh, intriguing. It is very intriguing. Uh, we have uh, more minor magic, cantrips, signs, charms, and hexes. Uh, did, okay, cantrips, we had those in the way. Uh, yes. I think we had charms, right? And I, I believe we had signs. I, I don't recall if we had hexes or not. But I don't I, recall hexes. They're, they're an interesting one. Um, yes, this, this is super helpful. We have cantrips, charms, signs, and hexes. So we do have all of them. Yeah, we do have all of them. All right, so fuck okay. it. Um, I I didn't read through the section on minor magic very carefully in either this or the black cube. Uh, It didn't really catch my attention very much. This is an example of the kind of a subsystem that's there. It's just not really something I'm investing a lot of effort into. Um, So it might just not be a big part of my games unless a particular player really wants to emphasize them. But uh, it's not going to affect the game for me to not emphasize them. Yeah, this is really more of a player-facing mechanic. Like these are small abilities that 
you know, illustrate that your characters are magical without having to expend any resources to do them. That makes sense. And, and one way around my concerns about the game being too complex is I think the game is very much player facing in that I, I like a lot of board games, which is again, part of the inspiration for the form factor of the game, if nothing else, players are, I think, expected to just take care of their own business Mm-hmm. And GMs are not necessarily expected to be taking care of everyone's business at the same time. Yeah, uh, nice world. <laughs> Let's see how that works, right? Yeah, um, and I wonder be, what that would be like. <laughs> your mileage may vary, but I believe that's how the game is designed, which is why uh, I, you know, I have no problem with just ignoring some subsystems, more or less, until a player wants to play them. And then in some cases, I can just say, great, tell me when that's relevant. Oh, and hey, Jason, when you hear this, uh, yeah, take a look at uh, this minor magic. You might have some fun with it. (laughs) Very good. The opposite of minor magic is long form magic. We've seen this before. These are rituals that often take uh, a great deal of time and resources to cast, uh, but usually securing some great magical effect. Uh, There's some new uh, subclasses of long form magic, including I think tattoos are new here. And they were very interesting. Uh, They allow you uh, to harness different aspects of the suns. And I thought that was a fun new addition. Uh, Uh, Can we take a look at one of those tattoos real quick? Um, Sure. I I lost all the tattoos. Where'd they go? Um, Uh, Long form magic. My recollection is that tattoos uh, often give you bonuses when casting spells from a certain sun. However, they only do so if you are, if the tattoo is currently uncovered. So you can't conceal your tattoo and take advantage of it. Uh, Also, they note that having a tattoo of a sun is sort of a sign of allegiance such that another person might hold a grudge. Hypothetically, they could also like you more uh, because Mm -hmm. of your tattoo. Yeah, so we have the blue tattoo, right? Um, There's a bunch of requirements. It's level six. And while the active sooth card is on the blue sun, the tattooed being gains plus one actions or plus one to actions involving the mind, including using blue magic. So that's interesting. You can, you know, throw that tattoo on. And then whenever you've got, you know, the blue sun active, you're getting a bonus regardless of what that sooth card is. Mm hmm. So in theory, you could uh, tattoo the whole path of suns uh, on your body and get that bonus every time, right? I think so. I did. I don't recall yeah. there being any uh, requirement that you that you have only one, or that a notion that the tattoos would compete with each other. Uh, this will be up to GMs to decide how big tattoos are for these rights, and uh, also covering. You'd have to have all of them uncovered all of the time to get, think... to take advantage of them. I think for reference, just go to uh, Twitter and check out at uh, Watchtower North. Yeah, uh, you can see his full sleeve that. tattoo, and you can get an idea of you know what this could look like. Right, that's what would be small because it has all of the uh, suns on one arm. You could say that each sun has a sigil or uh, a design that is an entire arm. So you, it, since there's no rules about the size of them, you as a GM can define what that would be. Uh, depending on how much you want people to to uh, ink up uh, and take advantage of this option. Well, take a look at those pictures. Uh, it is it is not small. Yes. Some like, people build houses. Some people get tattoos. This is a very interesting... That, that could be the entire focus of the character, and that's kind of... In, it's interesting the game accommodates that. Yep. 
Uh, and these rituals can be very large and involve. There's uh, one ritual, which we'll be a little vague about uh, because it is so big and so powerful. Uh, that includes 33 participants, of which 32 will be killed. Fun. <laughs> yeah. Just got to get, gotta get the gang together and then sacrifice the gang. Uh, take three years to prepare uh, and a year and a day to cast. And there's stipulations on how the one surviving person has to be involved in every, I think, every day. Um, it's huge uh, uh, ritual in terms of the setup and execution, but the benefit is also huge. So it, it's interesting to, to speculate on how, if, if anyone will be able to incorporate this into their games, because it could very well take someone out of um, a t- traditional campaign because the, for a year or you know three year, or I guess for a year, you are just doing this spell uh, more or Preparing less. Preparing for three years and then actively casting it for a full year and a day. Yes. So a lot of time devoted to this. I see this more as the sort of thing you'd be trying to disrupt to make sure someone, the wrong person doesn't get this sort of power. Uh, But I could see an entire campaign, especially for like a solo campaign. I could see a whole campaign around trying to uh, cast this particular ritual. And it it would have deep implications for uh, the the world uh, and your character if it is successfully completed. I believe the lore around this ritual is no one. It is not known whether anyone has ever actually completed it. Correct. Uh, of course, the rumor is no one has has uh, uh, completed, it, but we'll see. Uh, it also has a relation as to why this book is called the Book M. But we'll leave that to you to investigate. Uh, beyond that, you have exactly the sorts of things that you'd expect to see in this book: more spells, more ephemera, more objects of power. Uh, and uh, in a topic we'll get to more in our next segment, um, more secrets. And uh, these secrets include both character and house secrets, but also now changery secrets. Yeah, so now you can go into a... Yeah, we, we might. Uh, I, I haven't really read through all the changery stuff, but you can go to the changeries and now the you know changes you can make will have secrets tied to them from time to time. Uh, so like the changes are requirements to get these secrets. Yes, the examples I looked at, because I didn't read all of them, uh, included kind of like additional abilities that stack on top of a changery that, uh, 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 that you, you know, a, a change you have already made at a changery. So one example was, I think there's a chain, there's a changery option that turns your, that if you get hit and you take physical damage, you bleed snakes. And the mm-hmm. changery secret lets you control those snakes. That's the sort of secret we're talking about. It, it builds on top of the changery system, which is also a system that my players have not engaged very much, so I'm not as familiar yep. with it uh, as some of the other parts. Yeah, now that there are changery secrets, my characters might take an interest. Yeah, that makes sense. So overall, um, any reactions to the book or advice on how to tackle the book? Well, I'm probably going <laughs> to reference this the same way that I do Secrets of Silent Streets. Like I'm going to I'm going to read through it briefly again. I'm going to I'm going to skim it. I'm going to take a look at what what is in here. I'm going to definitely dive into uh, the first two sections. Like I want to read through further down the way and the world of magic again and and read through all the patrons and, you know, get a good idea of all that stuff. Those are 
pretty short sections uh, if you take out all the mechanical stuff. Uh, but those are going to be super interesting. The the phenomena, I'm going to read through those just so that I have an idea of you know interesting things that I can drop into the world in case I need to you know make a scene slightly different in one way or another. Uh, the rest of the stuff, this is all player facing stuff and I'm, I'm not going to concern myself as a GM too much with, you know, what's going on there. I am going to go through the secrets a little bit just to get an idea of, you know, what's in there and what might, what might my characters, what might the players be interested in just so that I can, you know, have an idea of how can they learn those secrets and how can they uncover them? Um, but yeah, once, once the physical version shows up, I'm just going to shuffle those spells into the, the rest of the decks and yeah, be ready to go. Yeah, I'll likely emphasize my reading of the patrons and the forte, uh, and then and secrets, uh, because I th- I may hold a lot of this back, though my players have the book anyway for the most part, I think. Um, mm-hmm. And just just know what secrets are there, and if I adv- identify some that I think they would like, build them into the game rather than waiting for the player to come to me and say, "I want to learn the secret." I might just say, "Oh, by the way." this person is renowned for knowing this, this secret and let if the, and if the player says, Ooh, that sounds really great. It's like, well, you might want to talk to them about that. And by the yep. way, character art costs this much. <laughs> yep. Yeah. So I'm going to use this a lot like secrets of silent streets. I'm going to quickly read through it and just hope that I absorb some of the information so that I can just fall back on it at the table. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com or email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com. You can find me at Agonseer, that's at A-G-O-N-S-E-E-R, on Twitter. And you can find me at Tex underscore Red on Twitter. So please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes uh, or whichever uh, podcast app you are using. Uh, it really helps us out. Uh, we also like seeing ratings and reviews, whether they're good or bad. Uh, or else just tell a friend about the show. That's another great way to get the word out and ha- help people find us.